ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, there's no doubt the old maxim of swim between the flags has kept millions of beachgoers safe, but the stats from Royal Lifesaving Australia show us some really alarming uh, figures. 35 drowning deaths in Australia in December last year alone, and as you know, it continues, and as you also know, I've been talking about it pretty much all summer. Well, every year, thousands of beachgoers need to be saved from the ocean because they do not possess beach safety knowledge and skills, and even though many of us know our favourite beaches to visit, how many of us understand their particular Potential hazards. Well, that's the point. Joining us on Overnights this morning, Professor Rob Brander, or Dr. Rip, if you like, a surf lifesaver, scientist who studies beaches, rips and currents. And the professor, or should I say Dr. Rip's book, Dr. Rip's Essential Beach Book, looks to educate all of us about this incredibly important issue through an entertaining and scientific examination of the science of the beach. Very happy to say the Professor Rob, or Dr. Rip, if you like, <laughs> is joining us on the line. Good to talk to you and thanks very much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. It's an important topic. Yeah, it is. Firstly, tell us about yourself. Where did you uh, get this love of the beach and where did that begin and how did it lead to becoming a surf scientist? Yeah, well, it's a bit of a long story, but um, I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto, Canada, and uh, I actually grew up near Lake Ontario, one of the Great Lakes, but the beach I grew up on had a big nuclear power generating station (laughs) and the water wasn't particularly warm, so we never swam there, but every year we go on holiday, family holiday, to Cape Cod in Massachusetts, uh, on the east coast of the U.S., and that's where my love of and there was no waves, there was no surf beaches where we went, but it was just this, you know, it was the best time of the year. It was a holiday. It was just fun. It was just every good memory was wrapped up with the ocean. Mm. And then when I started studying university, uh, I was doing physical geography, and one of my lecturers was a coastal geomorphologist, which meant he studied beaches. And I thought you can study these things, <laughs> and you know, I eventually asked him if he. <laughs> If he took uh, students and hired students over the summer, which he did, and I started helping him out with his field experiments, that involved a lot of diving and putting instruments in the water and measuring waves and currents. Mm. And then um, after I finished my master's, I had it in my mind that I wanted, I always wanted to go to Australia. So I came backpacking and arrived in Sydney. And I think on day two, an Australian friend took me to Bronte Beach in Sydney, and he pointed out this rip current. He said, oh, look at that rip. Yeah. And I'd been studying these rip currents, but I'd never actually seen one. And I couldn't see this thing. And that kind of triggered this interest in rip currents. And to make a long story short, I ended up coming back the next year to City University to do my PhD on rips. And I've been studying them ever since. Great. Now, tell us about the project then, the science of the surf. What's the fundamental philosophy there? Well, the science of the surf is a bit different. So I started, I did my PhD measuring rip currents. So we'd put instruments in, which is not an easy thing to do. And we did a number of experiments on different rips, both in Australia and New Zealand. Mm. And my first academic job was at uh, in New Zealand. And um, on a holiday, I went to the Coromandel Peninsula to a beach called Hot Water Beach, which is a very popular beach. And there was almost no wave action, but there was a gentle rip going out. And I took some pictures and, and there was a man sort of wading waist deep. And 20 minutes later... He tragically drowned in that rip current, and and we helped him get him to the beach and do CPR, and he was a German tourist. He was there with his wife and kids. It was terrible. And at that moment, I thought, you know, this should not have happened. The waves were tiny, uh, and if only he'd had a little bit of knowledge of what was going on and what he could have done. And I thought, well, I've got this knowledge about rip currents. And I and it was it was sort of like a a, a, a switch was flicked for me, and I thought I've I've got this obligation to get this information out to people. So 
when I came back to Sydney and, and worked at UNSW in 2000, I started off these community talks called The Science of the Surf at my surf club, which at the time was Tamarama mm. in Sydney. And it was just like a university lecture. I'd just get people into the main hall and, and I'd show them pictures about how beaches worked. It wasn't just about beach safety. I thought, if you just understand a little bit about how beaches work, how waves work, how rips work, mm. that's what's going to keep you safe. And And at the end of these talks, I would throw in this harmless purple dye or a rip current. And the science of the surf just grew. Wow. And I've given, you know, I've probably almost given a thousand of these talks over the last 20 odd years. Mm. And and that's culminated into, you know, videos, all sorts of educational material, and, and then my book. You know, you just described the perfect storm that uh, we see happen so often, you know, visiting from overseas a tourist and drowns in a place where shouldn't drown because there's no knowledge of the surf. And that's the point. So um, what type of resources would you find on the SOS Science of the Surf website? So on my website, um, I've got a lot of videos, but uh, of rip currents, of waves, just long, short videos explaining how they all work. Um, I've also got this feature, which I was actually just working on, called the Rip of the Month. So for the last 15 years, it's the 15-year anniversary this January, I've been putting up a picture of a rip current and just describing it. And I've, you know, so if you want some sort of immersive clockwork orange type experience, go to my Rip of the Month month and look at 180 pictures of rip currents. So there's links to rip current documentaries that I've been involved with. It's it's basically an educational website about rips and, yeah. and beach safety. And the largest collection of photos of rips in the entire world, I'm told. Absolutely. Somebody <laughs> should tell the Guinness Book of World Records because I'm pretty sure no one can beat that. I'll let them know. I'll let them know. Well, you know, you're, you're describing a situation and, uh, you know, I got my bronze medallion as a kid in the 60s. Now, a lot of that would probably have changed since then. So I've always had a love of and not a fear of, uh, you shouldn't be fearful of the surf, but just a knowledge of the surf. And, you know, I don't go where I'm not supposed to go. But unfortunately, a lot of people do. And that's just a lack of knowledge, isn't it, really? And uh, uh, it just worries I me. Mean, 35 in the month of December last year alone, and it's just ongoing. And uh, it's it's deeply troubling, considering, uh, Rob, we've got a you know country surrounded by water. We've got creeks and lakes and dams and backyard pools. There's water everywhere. That's right. And it really does come down. Well, it comes down to two things, I think. One is a complete lack of knowledge, which is scary. I mean, you made a good point that you've grown up with this and you have a respect for the surf. And so do I. So I'll go down to my local beach. And if it's too rough or I'm not sure, I'm not going to go in. But I have that knowledge to make that decision. But a lot of people, one, they don't have the knowledge. And two, they're not thinking about safety or they don't recognize the hazards at all. And so, for example, this morning, I was just walking the dog on my local beach and there was there was a woman jogging up and down the beach, and there was one little tiny rip along the beach, and she decided to go swimming right in it. Oh, yeah. And and luckily for her, I, I could tell she, you know, I was walking back, I could tell she didn't know what was going on, but but the rip was circulating back on the sandbar, so she was fine. But you know, I think we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. I mean, we sort of assume, and I assume when I came to Australia, that if anyone understands beaches, it's Australians. But a lot of Australians yeah. don't. So. No. Where have we gone wrong? Mm. You know, if you're a surfer or a regular beach user or body surfer, or whatever, you understand how the ocean works and rips. But most of us don't fall in that category. So where have we gone wrong in not educating people about some of the, the fundamentals? Because people go to the beach, right? Yeah, yeah, they do. And, and, and ill-equipped. That's the thing. 
Uh, not everybody, uh, but it's just look the, the stats on drownings just tell you that that people are going to the beach ill-equipped, no knowledge, and tragically, in some circumstances, Rob can't swim, and I, that's the thing that bothers me the most. But and, and yeah. that's a good point. I mean, yeah. it, maybe it comes down to just making sure everybody has mm. a has a basic ability to swim or even just to float because. As a lot of us can't swim. Yeah, exactly. Now, the book, a second edition of the book, uh, Essential Beach Book, uh, what's changed since uh, edition number one? Well, it's much better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, you know, I, I wrote the first edition in 2010, and, and when they asked me to do the second edition, I thought, well, I don't know what I'd update. But but when you go through it, um, I realized that, you know, things change. Science changes, our understanding, our safety advice changes. So I I revamped everything a little bit, and I used more more recent examples to explain things. But I redid the chapter on rips, and I redid the chapter on beach safety, and there's just there's just a lot more pictures uh, to help explain things. So, you know, I thought I, I think I've just made it better, and I've added a bunch of stories because the feedback I got from the first edition was I put in a lot of personal stories of my experience with beaches, and people like that, and yeah. I, and I liked writing those. Yeah. So I added more of those. So it's it's not a textbook. It's not a, it's not a hardcore science book. It's, you know, if you have any interest in beaches, this is trying to explain how they work yeah. and with a bit of fun and maybe a bit of, you know, um, sentimentality for my own love to beaches in there, but it's, it's fun. It's yeah. a fun book. Yeah. And that's the thing. And, uh, you know, you would know, as I know, surfers, that's the guys who ride boards. I mean, they know, I mean, they know, uh, which way the wind's blowing, what the swell's going to yeah. be like, which beaches to go to. And I imagine your book does exactly that. Describe uh, all of those surf conditions. That's right. You know, it starts off how do beaches form? You know, where does the sand come from? Why are some beaches different? And then it goes into how waves are formed, the different types of waves, how they break, what makes a good surf break. And then I talk about tides and tsunamis, like big motions in the ocean. And then I get into rips and currents. And then I talk more about the physical beach types and how they vary. And, and there's global examples. I mean, it's Australian focused, but there's global examples. And then I wrap it up with this beach safety chapter. So if you've ever wondered where your waves come from and you know why sandbars don't collapse and the various myths that are out there... It, I've tried to put in as much of that stuff as possible yeah, can in you, an engaging way. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Can you elaborate a bit on the importance and is very important of understanding local conditions for surf safety? Oh, yeah. Local conditions. Um, you know, every beach is different. Every, you know, beaches have slightly different orientations. They might have headlands. They might have rock outcrops. And the geology of the beach is quite important because a local will know, well, if the wind's blowing from this way, this end is going to be protected. That end's going to be quite rough. The locals will know where the rock outcrops are and because that can generate rip currents. So even when I go to new beaches, um, you know, I, I'm always a bit tentative about going swimming. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a beach scientist, so I can quickly suss out the type of beach. But I'm always wary of, 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 of different conditions. And I think I'm getting more wary as I get older, funnily enough. But local knowledge is huge. And, and of course, you get people... You know, we've done lots of studies of beachgoers and surveys of beachgoers, and and often, especially during the holiday period, they're traveling a mm. hundred kilometers or more to actually actually get to the beach. So they're not um, they're not knowledgeable of the local conditions. No, no, they're not. I understand there's a, a line or a sentence on an entry card if you come in on the plane now be, to be careful around our beaches, which is great. But I still don't think people know know enough. There was a frightening statistic uh, or piece of information that a lot of people who come from overseas actually think the red and yellow flags are where you don't swim or that it's dangerous to swim. So, you know, knowledge really, it's power, isn't it? 
Yeah, and you know, I was involved in this study. <clears throat> a colleague of mine, um, Masaki Shibata, is a linguist, and he's also a lifesaver. Yeah, and he did uh, this survey of of non English or not first English speaking people, and a lot of people they interpret the swim between the flags message as that's only if you can swim. Oh. That's where you go. Yeah. If you can't swim, you go somewhere else. Mm. And there's there's evidence that the red means danger in a lot of places. Mm. So that's a bit of a scary finding because our core safe, you know, the core way we keep beaches safe is swim between the red and yellow flags. And if you've got overseas uh, tourists and new migrants misinterpreting those basic messages, that's, that's a yeah. big problem. Yeah, that's one. Any other common misconceptions about surf safety that uh, you aim to address in, in the book? Uh I bust a few myths. I mean, I mentioned the, the, this collapsing sandbar. Often there'd be a mass rescue or even a drowning, and, and the reports you hear is that the sandbar collapsed, and all of a sudden people were in trouble. Well, that's an impossibility. Sandbars just don't collapse. What generally happens is you get a set of big waves come in, and they break, and the water level rises, and people lose their footing, and they, in, in their mind, the sandbar has, has gone away or it's collapsed. But really what's happened is the water level has risen, and then there's a rip current taking them out. I talk about rip currents. A lot of people think that rip currents are this sort of undertow that pulls people under the water. Mm, yeah. That's that's yeah. a myth. They it don't is, pull you yeah. under the water. They're just taking you for a ride. So little things like that um, are some of the myths I talk about. Well, you know, when I was young, uh, we knew about rips. And in those days, you, I don't know if it's still the right information. If it's not, please tell me. But uh, if you got caught in a rip and you could swim, it just went with it until it, uh, it played itself out. And then you could get back to the beach or get to the side or get somewhere else away from the rip. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, still the traditional advice that most people are familiar with, if you get caught in a rip current, you should swim parallel to the beach. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. and that was actually based on some original scientific measurements of rips done in the 1940s with oranges, funnily enough, at a beach that uh, in California, in San Diego, where the rip actually went straight out and went a long way. Oh, wow. So these yeah. scientists published this diagram. Mm. And if you look at the diagram, what the rip does, you think, well, if you swim parallel, you're going to be out. But as we know now, um, rips don't always flow straight offshore. They mm. can flow at angles. Yep. Um, and uh, often rips actually recirculate. So if you just float, there's a very good chance that you'll end up recirculating back in the shallow sandbar. Not always, but yeah. a lot of the time. And the other thing about swimming parallel is what if you can't swim or if you're not a good swimmer? Well, exactly. Uh, yes. And, and yeah. then that forces you to try and swim, which could tire yourself out, and that can lead to panic. Yeah, indeed. And that's the worst. How, yeah, I, we should say too, how do you balance conveying the importance of safety without discouraging people from actually enjoying the beach because it's uh, a great, they're great places to go? It's a good question. Um, what I try and do with my community presentations, my school presentations, I try to use humor, right? Yeah. I think humor is actually memorable. And if you can try and give them this beach safety information, talk about the dangers of rips, but in an engaging way, it's not like somebody telling you what to do, what to do. And, and you don't want to scare people. I don't want to scare people. I want people to go to the beach and have a great time. I, I love the beach. Mm. So I try and do it in, a, in a, an engaging manner. And I try and de-scarify rip current. So, you know, the number one advice is if you get caught in a rip, don't panic. Mm. But I think by, by using the word panic, people are thinking I shouldn't panic. I shouldn't panic. Um, panicking. Yeah. So I, I don't even use the word panic. I, I just say, well, look, the rip is just taking you for a ride. That's all, you know, you need to ride it out. You need to float. You need to signal for help. But I do talk about how, I think it's Bruce Hopkins um, from Bondi Rescue, the Waverly Council lifeguard, who says, 
you know, rips don't drown people, people drown in rips. And I think that's very true. Mm, indeed. Any other personal experiences or stories that uh, you can remember that, remember that highlight the significance of uh, safety in the surf? Oh, I, I remember um, we were doing an experiment at Murawai Beach, uh, one of Auckland's high energy West Coast beaches. If you've been there, it's near Piha. And we were doing an experiment measuring the rip current flow. Mm. And we had to survey the bathymetry, had to survey the sandbars using old-fashioned stadia rods and surveying equipment. So uh, there was a sort of a, a trough, a feeder current from the beach to the sandbar that was about 30 meters wide, maybe 40 meters wide. Hmm. And I, I had to survey the trough and I was up to my neck. And then I had to get it back on the sandbar, which was like ankle deep. And I was I was on the sandbar measuring and this big wall of water all of a sudden just came across the sandbar and knocked me back into the feeder. Now, these rips were massive. Often rips start by flowing along the beach. So you had this strong feeder flying along the beach. And I knew that if I turned the corner into the main part of the rip and headed offshore, because we'd done this supervised days previously, I would have gone 400 meters offshore. And there was no one around but us. So I swam across this feeder back to the beach as hard as I could, and I barely made it. And I remember being absolutely exhausted, just crawling up the beach. And my colleagues who were on the sand dune were sort of waiting. If I'd turned the corner, they were going to have to get in a four-wheel drive because there's no mobile phones mm. and get some help. That was that was scary, um, very scary. And the days previously, we'd actually purposely jumped in the rip and we were being tracked offshore, but we had the, the surf club IRB to pick us up. So it wasn't scary at all. But thinking, well, what's going to happen to me if I'm 400 meters offshore? I can't swim in that far. Yeah, um, that's that right. Was, that's that was right. full on. Yeah, yeah, and this other thing too in Australia, we've got so much coastline, and uh, a lot of people do go to beaches where there are no lifeguards, or if there are flags, they're right down at the end of the beach, and they say, "Oh, look, I'll be okay to swim here." Look, it's odds on you won't be okay to swim there because it's it could be very dangerous. I mean, I know we could talk about it forever, but uh, people have got to be so careful, don't they? Well, unpatrolled beaches are the biggest challenge facing facing us because yeah. last summer there was 54 drownings along the coast. Every one of them, every one of them was at an unpatrolled location. Yeah, right. So that's telling you something. It's telling you, one, that the flags are safe, but the flags aren't everywhere. Mm. You know, it's there's so many popular and easily accessible um, unpatrolled beaches. And we, again, we went to a bunch of these beaches and we surveyed the beach goers, basically saying, why are you here and blah, blah, blah. And they all knew about the flags and that they should, but they were close to their holiday accommodation, which was on the beach. And yeah. the nearest the nearest mm. flags was 35-minute drive away. So it's unrealistic to assume that everyone is going to heed the advice and go to a flag-patrolled beach. So in that case, I mean, plenty of these unpatrolled beaches are completely safe and fine. Mm. But most of them, any surf beach, you're going to have rips. And I don't know. That's the big challenge is how do we – you can't – See, by educating people about rips, you also run the risk of making them overconfident. They say, well, I understand rips now. I, I don't have yeah, somebody I'm, in the yeah, flags. I'm, I'm sweet. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's a slippery slope. Mm, mm. So, I mean, I know it's probably an obvious question, but what do you do if there's no one else on the beach? Don't swim there. Go find somewhere else. Well, yeah. <laughs> if there's no one on the beach and you and no surfers, because surfers do a lot of rescues. They a do. A lot of rescues. Yes, they do. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And if you're alone on the beach and you find yourself in a rip, you know, you've only got two options. You you either have to wait till it spits you out the back and then you swim a long way up and down the beach and back in. But the question is, well, you shouldn't have gone in. Um, mm. You just made a really bad decision. But, you know, if there are people around, um, 
Yeah, as soon as you get to the beach, any beach, you should always stop and think about beach safety. Spend mm. it. It's you don't cross the road without looking both ways. Always think: is it safe? Are there people around? Are there surfers? If somebody were to get in trouble, or me, or we, if you got in trouble, what would you do? Right? Do you even have mobile phone reception? That's Surf Life Saving Australia, the national body, has been pushing this campaign for a few years called the Think Line, which is this concept that when you get to the beach, you stop and you draw an imaginary line in the sand and you think about beach safety yeah. and you look for hazards yeah. and you have a plan. And I think that's probably the best message we can do um, aside from swimming between the flags. Yeah. And well, you touch on this too. I mean, how often is it the case uh, that someone drowns or is drowning, someone else goes in to help them and they perish themselves. So, I mean, what do you do if you, you see someone uh-huh. drowning and you're not particularly a confident swimmer yourself? I know the first instinct is to rush in and try and help. Of course. And, and again, we've done studies on this and um, you know, last summer there was five fathers who drowned trying to save their child and the child was okay. And, and they were all involved in rip currents. Yeah. I think the message there is that even, you know, even if your child is in trouble, it's your child, of course, as a parent, you're going to go in, but don't rush in. You need to take 10 seconds, maybe more. That's not going to make a difference, but you need to get somebody to go get help or somebody to call for help. You need to look around on the beach and maybe somebody's got a boogie board or an esky, something that floats. Cause if you're going to go in, you need to bring something that floats mm-hmm. and you don't sprint to the water because you're already tired and then or, or run to the water. You're already tired. And then you sprint and swim. And by the time you get to that person, you're exhausted. The person in trouble in the water probably isn't panicking as much as you are. So don't rush in. And if, and I think the statistic was in the last 15 years, there's been 65 of these bystander drownings. Oh, and yeah. I think yeah. pretty much, pretty much all of them did not bring anything that floated with them. So mm-hmm. If you're going to go in, you have to bring something that floats. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to go back to this point uh, before we uh, leave our conversation. If you do get into trouble, I mean, I, I know it's easy to say don't panic, but get that hand in the air quickly uh, yeah. so that someone can come and help you. And that's so important. I mean, floating is the best thing to do in any situation in, in water, really, because you're conserving your energy, but you also have to signal for help. And, uh, you know, you talk to lifeguards, and lifeguards will tell you all the time that people just don't signal for help half the time for whatever reason. So, you know, if you're on a patrol beach with lifeguards and lifesavers, they're looking for an arm up, straight, waving, whatever. Yeah. If you're not on patrol beach, you're probably going to have to call out. And if there's surfers around, you know, they're probably looking offshore, so you need to get their attention, but you must signal for help. Yeah, exactly. Well, you see, <laughs> Rob, since I got my bronze medallion, I think it was about 1965, 66, so many things have changed. And the technology is great. I, I noticed I've got a few more jet skis to use uh, for surf rescue. I don't know if they still use the old uh, line and belt uh, to get nah, out there. Don't, nah. They wouldn't use that anymore. Uh, but, nah. but they can get out to you quickly. So that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the jet skis, it's interesting. Um, not all beaches and patrols have jet skis. No, no. You know, typically the lifeguards are still incredibly proficient on on the the rescue boards. On the boards, yeah. You know, the rescue boards are are, are still the primary method of doing rescues. I'm pretty sure, um, in Australia, and you know, they can get out pretty fast. Uh, you know, the jet ski takes a bit of effort to get in the water. Of course, it's faster once it's in the water. Um, but I think jet skis are really for pretty much hardcore conditions. Yeah. But the board is still the best method. 
Yeah, and there's still a lot of summer left, so uh, if we're getting the message across to uh, anybody who's listening to us right around Australia, to just be really, really careful. I mean, it's just such a fun day. I mean, I've been a beach girl my whole life. I can't remember not going to the beach. Just such a fun day out, whether you're a surfer or you're just going for a swim or the kids and you're you know, having a meal and sitting on the beach and having a great time. But please, please, please don't let it turn into tragedy. That's right. I mean, the beach is a place of joy. Everyone's there for fun. You're in holiday mode, but... Just just take a few minutes thinking about beach safety, right? Yeah. And um, and that might be the best we can do. Yeah. And, you know, I've been saying, my listeners know I've been saying this, and I don't know if it's even possible. I mean, the fact that so many people can't swim, I'm, I'm thinking maybe, you know, it's funded by state governments. And uh, I know you can't make anything compulsory these days, but, you know, it's that, look, it's funded. You don't have to pay for it because the cost of swimming lessons is an issue for people. Yeah. You don't have to pay. The state government's going to pay. And there's a swimming lesson at school, you know, every Friday afternoon at half past three for an hour. And, you know, that's got to help, hasn't it? Something like that would have to help. Absolutely. And I mean, that's beyond my, my influence. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, you too as well. But, you know, wouldn't it be, you know, and, and you mentioned it, it's not just beaches. We have so many inland waterways. And, oh, you yeah. know, one of my colleagues keeps, Amy Peden, keeps reminding me that more people drown in, in rivers than drown in the coast. And yep. she's right. So, you know, that you know, it would be, it would be incredible to have mm. that kind of program set mm. up. And as because swimming, swimming lessons are expensive. Yeah, um, yeah, they absolutely. Are. So that that should happen. Yeah, well, you know, I've got a uh, just quickly. I've got a creek down below my place that uh, we love to swim. It's a lovely creek, but when the tide's going out, that thing rushes really fast. And if uh, you know, I've had people go in it and they go, "Oh, gee," you know, you're knocked off your feet and away you go. So, uh, careful, careful, careful. That's the that's the message we're trying to get across, isn't it? Yeah, and rivers, um, in some ways, rivers are, are probably more dangerous than, than waves and beaches because river flow is very unstable. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of um, different undercurrents and vortices and little whirlpools. And, yeah. you know, it's not easy to sw- always to swim in a river, um, yeah. even when it's flowing flowing fairly yeah. calm. Whereas the surf, the waves are breaking, pushing the water in, you got rips to take it out. That's about it. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, rivers, rivers can be nasty. Yeah, it's been great to talk to you. So, folks, the science of the surf. That's the science of the surf dot com, and Doctor Rip's essential beach book. That's probably the best nickname I've ever heard, Doctor Rip. <laughs> well, I guess <laughs> I didn't come up with it. I think the Bondi lifeguards came up with it, but uh, it's stuck. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, just again, very briefly before I leave you, what a terrific thing that is to have on television, the Bondi lifeguards. Oh, it's great. Yeah. We actually actually had a student do a study looking at the educational benefits of watching Bondi Rescue, and it's massive. Yeah. It's massive. They're learning about the, especially overseas, you know, people in England love it, but it goes to so many countries and they're learning about the flags. They're learning about rips. It's, it's, it's a great show. And I've known a lot of those guys for, for 20 odd years and it's, it's fun watching the show and they're legit, right? They're, yeah, um, they they're great lifeguards. Yeah, and uh, that's uh, the thing that we should be so proud of here in Australia. Those guys do that for nothing. They're volunteers. They don't get paid. Well, yeah. there's a difference in the – I mean, we've got the Lifesavers, and that's fantastic, but we've also got the, the Professional Council Lifeguards. The pros, and, yeah, that's And right. they're fantastic yeah. as well. Yeah, you bet. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thanks very much for sparing so much time with us. No, thanks a lot for that, Tim. Professor Rob Brander. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. 